So um, thank you guys as usual for joining us on this Friday. I am very, very excited about today's presentation, excited enough to stop rounds and stop doing bronchoscopies, which means I'm at a high level of excitement today. Um, so I'm excited to introduce Dr. Valeria Valbuena. So um, she's actually a general surgery resident at uh, Michigan, um, recently published some work uh, looking at the use of pulse oximetry in patients uh, who require ECMO cannulation. She's here today to speak to us about prediction with a white standard. Um, I think this is an incredibly important topic. The more we're sort of knowing and learning about the racial biases of pulse oximetry and here at Maryland, obviously the implications of that in our floor patients, our ICU patients, our ECMO patients. Um, so I cannot wait to hear your expertise about this and, and to have you share your thoughts uh, and your work. So thank you very much for being here with us today. Good. Good afternoon, everybody, and thank you so much, Dr. Levin, for that kind introduction, and to you all for the opportunity to uh, join you for your critical care curriculum. Um, I do not have any uh, disclosures for us today, and it is really a pleasure to be back uh, at the University of Maryland, even if it isn't Zoom. Um, my very first time was back in uh, 2017 um, when I was interviewing for residency. Um, and that day, of course, they took um, they took all the the general surgery applicants uh, to shock trauma. Um, it was, of course, the main event of the day. And we talked about the ECMO program at length. Um, and I remember really being in awe at the depth of care that your institution offers to some of the vulnerable patients uh, in your state. And um, and so today's discussion is mostly about them, um, your patients, but also about uh, the real challenge that we are all facing as a profession to reverse hundreds of years of differential patient care. Um, and so as Dr. Levin mentioned, I am a general surgery resident, uh, which brings along its own set of questions about my stake on um, palm critical care research. But, uh, but my research interests lie broadly in the areas of disparities in access and delivery of care and workforce diversity. And so I wanted to start today's discussion by sharing some of the learning objectives that I have for us today. And at the end of the session, I hope that uh, to introduce you to the concept of measurement bias in medical design, explore some historical lessons from the field of medicine, and of course, learn about racial bias in pulse oximetry and how it applies to patients with severe respiratory failure um, who require ECMO. So here is a brief roadmap of our agenda. Uh, we're we're going to start by reviewing some basic definitions so we can all get on the same page. Um, we will then go into detail about different types of bias in medical design with some examples. And then we'll talk about the pulse ox and how and why it is racially biased. And then we will close with the study design and findings and some of the implications of our most recent investigation from our group, um, which of course focuses on the ECMO population. So the definition of race, um, which is the, the center of the stock, uh, has changed and evolved as we have gained a better understanding of the motivations behind creating human categories. Um, and race is a descriptor uh, of a grouping of individuals based on either a shared physical or social quality, um, which is viewed as distinct within a grieving group or, or society. Um, so race is a social construct, we have made it up, um, and it is an identity which is assigned purely based on rules that we have made. And so while sometimes it's partially based on physical similarities within groups, like skin color, um, race does not have any inheriting physical or biological meaning, uh, meaning and, and that has been proven true. Um, 
the concept of DevDev is an even more contentious one, uh, but we will start with focusing on his, on his strictest statistical definition. Um, and so the bias of an estimator uh, or a test is the difference between that estimator's expected value and the true value of whatever parameter is being estimated or measured. Um, and so in the graph on the right side, you can appreciate how bias sort of lives between the true value and of a measurement and whatever the measure value we obtain from the estimator. And when we consider the concept of bias in medical design and prediction and measurement, uh, it might become quickly apparent how some of the most common uh, tools that we use in medicine uh, might be fraught by it. Um, in April of this year, uh, the journal Science published this editorial uh, by Dr. Ashuda Kadami, who is an, a professor of engineering and computer science at UCLA, um, <clears throat> where he explored in detail how the hardware and software that operates on medical devices can be biased. And in his article, he did a really great job elaborating on the three broad forms of medical design bias that can be that can affect medical devices, but also diagnostic algorithms and prediction tools. And those three types of bias are computational bias, interpretation bias, and physical bias. And computational bias pertains to the distribution and processing of data um, that we're using to operate as subsequent implementation in clinical settings um, of either information or devices can lead to interpretation bias, where clinical staff like us or other users might interpret device outputs differently based on uh, patient demographics. And of course, a device can exhibit bias where physical principle, the physical principles that were used to design the device are biased against that particular demographic. And so first, we're going to discuss an example of computational bias. Um, so in this brief report from the Proceedings of the National Academy of Science, the authors described how diagnostic algorithms can learn patterns uh, from X-ray imaging data sets of uh, thoracic conditions. Um, however, those imaging data sets often contain a very surprising imbalance where females are underrepresented. And so, for example, despite this, the data set that they use having a sample size of over 100,000 images, frequently, this frequently used chest X-ray database is about 60% male and 40% female. And that imbalance worsens the quality uh, of diagno uh, the diagnostic quality for female patients. And so a solution that they proposed was to balance out the data set. And somewhat unexpectedly, once you balance the gender representation to about a 50-50 uh, female-to-male uh, ratio, that boosts the diagnostic performance, um, not only for females, which is expected, but also, also for males. And so another form of computational bias is, of course, algorithm bias, um, where the mathematics of the data processing uh, disadvantages a certain group. And so in this perspective piece, which I strongly recommend everybody to check out, it's very well written, uh, in the New England Journal of Medicine, uh, the authors did several commonly used medical algorithms, things that you wouldn't, you wouldn't even think of, um, and how they might introduce bias into medical decision-making, directing either more attention or more resources to white patients compared to those uh, who identify with uh, racial or ethnic minorities. And one well-known example uh, of, of this bias is the use of a race adjustment in the estimated vulnerable filtration factor equation. 
So the MDRD equation reports a higher estimated GFR by a factor of about 1.2 um, if the patient identifies as black. And the MDRD equation is based on an original study which included about 1,300 white patients and 197 black patients. And in that study, the researchers found that on average, black people in the study had higher kidney filtration rates compared to the white patients in the study at around the same blood creatinine concentration. And that suggested to the authors that the formula that they were using to estimate GFR was underestimated kidney, underestimating kidney function for black patients. And so the authors introduced this race correction uh, to the formula to better fit the data of the study. And so in a second, much larger study, which was published in um, 2009, the authors revised the MDRD equation and they that they used, we used to estimate GFR. But they also found that it was more accurate, they had more accurately reflected the measured GFR when they added that um, race adjustment for black patients. Um, and so to, to go back and clarify, the inclusion of the race adjustment as a result of the findings of this study was made after an observation that in average, black patients in their studies had higher levels of serum creatinine. However, when the generalization was made to all black patients, it was assumed that there was a root, the root difference um, uh, was biological. And so it was argued that patients, black patients either have a higher muscle mass or a different way for their kidneys to eliminate creatinine. Um, and so this generalization, um, which obviously first does not account for the diversity within black communities or the patients that might identify as black, I identify as black, I'm half white. Um, and the use of this race as a, a, a correction as a proxy for some biological difference between patients, it can really impact patient care by inserting the systematic underestimation of the degree of kidney disease for a very large group of patients. And it happens that the systematic underestimation like, has some really very real consequences. So in transplantation, which is the clinical wheelhouse where I will be living long term, we use uh, patients CKD stage to the side when to refer them for kidney transplantation. And since CKD stage is calculated using uh, GFR exclusively, black patients with an underestimated CKD stage Sorry, I see that we missed connection for a second. Yep, you're good. It's okay. There we go. Does that slide look familiar? Perfect. Sweet. Um, so they demonstrated that if they estimated kidney function without including a coefficient for race versus when they included a race coefficient, um, it was significant associated, not including the race coefficient, with a shorter time to achieving an, uh, the estimated uh, GFR of less than 20 um, mils per minute, which is that key threshold uh, of kidney function for referral and listing for transplantation. 
And so, of course, the risk correction for EGFR has come under fire as early as, as 2015, largely in part to actually grassroots efforts from medical trainees uh, from across the country uh, advocating for the removal of the race modifier. And attention from the media has fueled urgency around the issue of finding and designing a less biased equation. Um, and as of today, actually, there are several institutions in the United States that have formally removed the modifier from their EGFR calculations. And there are now two different equations uh, that have been proposed without race modifiers. So moving on to uh, interpretation bias, and so this is the one that us, the users or clinicians introduce. Uh, a good example of a misinterpreted medical device is actually the spirometer, and so, uh, which of course you all know it measures lung capacity. And the interpretation of spirometry data creates unfairness because certain ethnic groups such as black or Asian patients are just assumed to have a lower lung capacity compared to white patients. And that assumption is based on like really like historical studies that might have incorrectly estimated uh, the degree of inane lung capacity in between patients of different races. And so in the United States, spirometers use a correction factor for patients identifying as black of 10 to 15 percent. And patients who identified as Asian are corrected from 4 to 6 percent of spirometry. So in this 2021 book, which is another recommendation, very interesting, uh, Breathing Race into the Machine, um, author Ludi Brown tracks the remarkable history of uh, race correction in this primary and how this race adjustment measure for lung capacity sort of became an unremarkable scientific practice, just something that we did and didn't think again about. Um, and interestingly, and particularly relevant for our discussion today, uh, Brunt's interest in this topic started in the late 1990s when she read an article in her local newspaper um, about uh, race correction and pulmonary function tests and actually in a asbestos class action suit. Um, and the local newspaper was the Baltimore Sun. Uh, so Owens Corning, which is a, a, a Baltimore roofing and insulation company, has been the target of hundreds of lawsuits over charges that the asbestos in its products has sickened thousands of workers. And the company, like back in the 1990s, argued to the courts that black workers that were suing them should have a higher threshold to be able to claim compensation for their lung disease. Um, and that they, and they cited the medical evidence that black patients already had a, a different lung capacity compared to white workers. And so the, the lawyers for the insulation manufacturer required black workers to show that they had worse results on the spirometry as a result of their asbestos exposure before they were able to even qualify for trial, which is crazy. Um, and just like GFR, spirometry and pulmonary function tests have come under the scrutiny of the public. And luckily, there are several current efforts to produce the evidence needed to remove the race adjustment from pulmonary function tests as well as uh, some society advocacy around the issue. And so now we're going to move on to physical bias and how it influences uh, pulse oximetry. And physical bias, um, which is the measurement bias associated with how devices are designed um, with a white standard often, is a little bit less intuitive than the first two. Um, like how can a machine, a physical device, encode bias? Um, so the, 
The physical principle of a medical device that is biased is that it exhibits an undesirable performance or a variation in results across a particular demographic group. So an example of physical bias, for example, occurs on the, uh, in the context of the optical biosensor, biosensors of the pulse ox. So pulse ox uh, oximeters use two color lights, one that is near infrared and then one that is visible uh, to measure blood oxygenation after interacting with hemoglobin. Unfortunately, there are, a, there are a number of things, many things probably, that can affect this interaction between hemoglobin and the light waves from the pulse ox. And uh, one of those things is melanin. And so that makes it so that the device does not work as well in patients with darker skin tones. And so just to take a pause, this is this spot is where our story with the pulse oximetry started um, here at Michigan. Um, so during the first wave of the pandemic, uh, Michigan was hit very hard and very early. Um, and just like you guys, we care for hundreds of critically ill patients, we still are. Um, around the state and relied more than ever on oximetry, on pulse oximetry in a number of settings, including, of course, the emergency department for triage and our ICUs. Um, and at this time, clinicians at my institution, uh, this was still when I was back uh, as a clinical resident, they started to notice occurrences of undetected hypoxemia, cold hypoxemia where patients that had an otherwise normal pulse oximetry reading were profounding, profoundly hypoxemic on blood gas evaluation. And so, and most of those patients um, happened to be black. Um, so here's our working definition of a cold hypoxemia, which is a, an arterial blood gas saturation of less than 88%, despite a, despite a pulse oximetry of uh, greater than 92, between 92 and 96%, what most of us will consider a normal range where we would intervene in a, in a patient case with the right clinical picture. And so at the same time, the, the, the phenomenon of this disparate rate of hypoxemia in black patients was being noticed in intensive care units during the first wave. Um, Dr. Amy Moran-Thomas, who is an associate professor of anthropology at MIT, published this eye-opening review um, in the Boston, uh, opening piece in the Boston Review, uh, which explored decades of accumulated evidence, demonstrated there was a systematic bias in the pulse ox, especially in dark-skinned individuals. And so, prompted by their observations at the bedside, um, the clinicians are my co-authors at my institution, aim to answer the following question. When the pulse ox reads 92 to 97, so like, or 92 to 96, sorry, what are the odds that a patient will have an oxygen saturation of less than 88% as measured by ABG? And what are the odds that, what, what are the chances that those odds are different for patients of different races? Uh, and of course, race here was used as a surrogate for skin color. So here's how they went about answering that question. So this was a retrospective study of two large patient cohorts, one at U of M and a larger multi-center uh, cohort abstracted from the EICU collaborative uh, research database, which included information from 178 hospitals. And we included a, they included adult inpatients that were receiving supplemental oxygen and uh, the, a pair arterial blood gas and pulse ox measurements within 10 minutes of each other were extracted from the record. And they tested the primary outcome was a, a cold hypoxemia for patients that were identified as either black or white in both cohorts. 
Um, that SpO2 range uh, selected for their analysis, so 92 to 96%, was very intentional. This is the SpO2 range where, debatably, many of us will be reasonably reassured about the oxygenation of a patient with the right clinical picture. So at a pulse odds reading below 92 will probably raise alarms for the majority of us. And anything higher than 96 feels a stone cold normal. And so that SBO2 range of the range of clinical interest was very important to their study design. Um, and of course, their estimates of a cold hypoxemia were adjusted for things like age and sex and SOFA score only for the EOM cohort. So here's a box plot depicting the accuracy of pulse oximetry in measuring arterial oxygen saturation according to race. On the x-axis, you have the oxygen saturation as measured by the pulse ox as a percent. And in the y-axis, we have the arterial oxygen saturation as measured by arterial blood gas, also as a percent. And that shaded area, the shaded gray area, indicates an arterial oxygen saturation of less than 88%. Um, within the box plot, the horizontal line within each box represents the median. And then the top of the bottom of each box represent the upper and lower limits of the interquartile range. And if you look at the chart, you can appreciate how every, at every pulse oximetry reading in the range of clinical interest, black patients have a true lower arterial oxygen saturation overall compared to the, what the pulse ox measured and an overall lower relative to white patients, um, frequently crossing that 88% line. So in the unadjusted analysis for the UM cohort, the rate of a cold hypoxemia was 11.7 for black patients versus 3.6 for white patients. And these rates were very similar after adjusting for age and sex and SOFA score. And in the multi-center cohort, the rate of a cold hypoxemia was 17% in black patients and 6.2% in white patients. So my co-authors demonstrated that in two large cohorts, black patients had nearly three times the frequency of hypoxemia that was not detected by pulse ox compared to white patients. And of course, at this point, the results of this correspondence has been, have been now widely circulated. Um, and it prompted a number of reactions and public engagement around the issue, which has been um, very exciting and important for um, the solution making and what we're gonna be doing next. Um, just like this piece in The Lancet by Drs. Colón Hidalgo, who's in attendance today, Olenzaña and Harlan, who at that time of publication were all critical care fellows. Um, and then they reviewed the past studies from the 1990s and early 2000s that have very similar results to the ones in Jordan et al. And highlighted that, this, that despite this being a phenomenon backed by data, no changes had been made to the technology at all. And of course, pulse oximeters are not hypersensitive to white patients, but they systematically under-detect hypoxemia on black patients, which is a very great example of white patients being used as the design standard. Um, so here are the two most salient pieces of historical evidence about this phenomenon. The original study on pulse ox racial bias was not um, well, not intended to find pulse ox racial bias. <laughs> it was published by Jubran and Tobin in 1990, uh, about one year before I was born. And the purpose of the study was to determine if pulse oximetry could reliably be substituted in for arterial for a PaO2 blood gas when adjusting for FiO2 on ventilator dependent patients. And so. 
To answer that question, they evaluated pulse oximetry saturation values for 54 critically ill patients. And the graph on the left-hand side of the slide shows their principal findings. So in the x-axis for both grids, we have the arterial oxygen saturation as measured by um, ABG as a percent. And then in the y-axis, we have the pulse ox measurements from uh, 70 to 100 also as a percent. And the solid line in both in the middle of both grids, the diagonal line, is the line of identity of full correlation between the two measurement modalities. So if the pulse ox and the ABG completely agree with each other, all the dots will be clustered along that, that uh, solid line. And the dashed lines are the isoplets of different levels of bias. So when the dots are straying away from that middle line to the dashed lines, that, that um, uh, notes increasing levels of measurement bias. And so there were 55 measurements that they obtained in white patients, which is the top grid, and then 43 measurements obtained in black patients, which is the bottom grid. And you can appreciate the difference in the distribution of the measurements in relation to that solid line of zero bias. There are significantly more measurements for black patients along the isoplets of higher levels of measurement bias compared to the measurements in white patients. And so they concluded that the pulse ox was less accurate and frequently overestimated uh, arterial blood gas saturation for black patients. And again, this was in 1990. Over 10 years later, um, so nothing happened after study number one. Uh, and 10 years later, Feiner and Bickler tested measurement bias, the same thing, on three separate pulse oximeters. And the graph on the left uh, shows the results for two of those devices. So on the x-axis for both grids, um, you uh, have SAO2 as measured by blood gas, and then the y-axis is the mean bias for the measurement. So that's the difference between SpO2 and SAO2. Um, and the blue line in, bl in both grids is the, that zero bias line for the device. So if both testing modalities correlated, all of the dots will be over the, um, over the blue line. Um, Light skin subjects are indicated by open circles. This study was very interesting because they actually were able, it was prospective, so they were able to, um, to use a skin color instead of race as a surrogate. Um, dark skin subjects uh, are depicted by the closed circles, and then intermediate skin pigment subjects uh, are depicted by the gray circles. And you can appreciate how bias was generally the greatest in dark skin subjects. Uh, intermediate for the intermediate skin tone ones, and then the very least for the lightly pigmented individuals. Like the majority of those white circles in both charts are hovering over the no bias line. And of note that the range of uh, arterial oxygen saturation that they chose for this particular experiment went all the way back to like 60 to 70, uh, where bias between groups is objectively the greatest in both for both devices. Um, and the effect sort of tapers on the on the higher um, um, SAO2 concentrations. However, the effect remains in the higher and clinically relevant SAO2 levels. And we actually have had many discussions about whether the tapering of the effect maybe was one of the reasons that this piece of evidence was also overlooked at the time of publication. Um, so. To take a pause at this point, you might be asking yourself why if the device, the issue with the device has been known for three decades, um, nothing has been done about it. Um, and honestly, although there is evidence, of course, to support the claims of physical bias in pulse oximetry, 
There also have been some important opposing viewpoints uh, raised by the scientific community, uh, especially around the limitations of the existing evidence. And so, for example, some articles that were uh, published after the New England Journal of Medicine piece um, noted that bias and precision, limits of agreement and accuracy, which are all measurements commonly included in evaluations of accuracy between two measurement methods that are supposed to be measuring the same thing, um, were missing from the evidence. Um, and we eventually completed uh, those analysis. However, I feel that in part the focus over this uh, metric sort of missed the importance of that uh, clinically relevant range of 92 to 96 where we have uh, based a lot of our analysis on, um, where, where the daily we have more variability on our decision making uh, to in a step sort of focus on these parameters that have to be measured along the entire measurement range of the device. However, again, we did, uh, we did end up completing that analysis. More interestingly, however, a recent uh, single-center retrospective study, uh, which was published in anesthesia about two months ago, <clears throat> used data from 194 um, patients with COVID-19, and they assessed the pulse oximetry measurement bias of several, for several racial and ethnic groups within their sample. Um, the study included 135 white patients and um, 19 uh, black patients, and they analyzed uh, over 6,000 uh, pairs of SAO2 and SPO2 measurements. Um, and they found the following bias estimates, um, and you can see that the bias is higher for black patients. However, they were under sorry underpowered to detect uh, a statistically significant difference between uh, uh, each one of the racial and ethnic groups that they evaluated. And so that brings us to our most recent contribution to this body of evidence, uh, where we aim to address some of the limitations of the previous studies that uh, continue to be noted. So. Previous studies had only included, for the most part, comparisons between black and white patients. Um, at that time, uh, the anesthesia study hadn't been published. And then patients had a range of uh, critical illnesses um, and no data on alcohol hypoxemia on that higher SpO2 range had been provided. And uh, uh, some criticisms have been raised around that. And of course, the previous studies, the New England Journal of Medicine study, for example, used timestamped electronic data that had not been confirmed by a clinician uh, or inputted into a database by a data manager. And so we aim with our study to address some of these limitations. Um, so our research question was the following. Uh, does the pulse oximetry less effectively detect arterial hypoxemia in black, Hispanic, and or Asian patients uh, compared to white patients who are in respiratory failure severe enough to uh, initiate extracorporeal membrane oxygenation. And to answer that question, we use the extracorporeal life support organization database, uh, which many of you know very well. And they collect very granular data on all of our patients who are undergoing extracorporeal life support in centers all around the world. Um, we included patients who were 18 years or older um, who were diagnosed with either ARDS or COVID-19 and who were placed on ECMO for management of the respiratory failure between uh, January of 2019 and uh, July of 2020. We excluded all patients that had any relevant missing data for any of our analysis using case-wise deletion, and then we excluded uh, second, third, and fourth ECMO runs within the same hospital hospitalization for the same patient. 
Our primary outcome uh, was the rate of occult hypoxemia across different races and ethnicities. And again, we defined occult hypoxemia as an SAO2 of less than 88%, despite an SPO2 between 92 and 96. And then we had a secondary outcome, which was the rate of occult hypoxemia in patients of different races and ethnicities for an SPO2 measurement of greater than 96%. Our primary exposure was race um, and ethnicity as defined by the ECMO Center. So Asian, Black, Hispanic, uh, Asian, Black, Hispanic, and white patients were included in the analysis. And the pre-ECMO arterial blood gas values that we use uh, for this particular analysis had a pretty strict criteria to be inputted into ELSO. So the first had to be drawn prior to the start of ECMO. Um, they had to be drawn no more than six hours before the start of ECMO, which I know it seems like a long time. However, if multiple arterial blood gases were drawn uh, in that six-hour period, as it is very commonly the case when we're taking care of one of these unstable patients, um, the one, the ABG closest by nearly before the start of ECMO uh, was the one reported. And Again, our primary outcome of interest was the unadjusted rate of occult hypoxemia, uh, and we used chi-square tests to compare the rates of pre-ECMO occult hypoxemia for white patients, uh, and then for the ones of other races and ethnicities using white as their uh, reference category. And then we performed multivariable analysis using logistic regression uh, for each race and ethnicity compared to white patients to examine the relationship between those variables and the odds of a coal hypoxemia. And finally, to assess for those measurements of bias, precision, and, precision and limits of agreement and accuracy, uh, we perform a, a blend element analysis. And a BA plot, which you can see on the right side of the screen, uh, identifies any, it offers the opportunity of identifying systematic differences between uh, measurements for two measurement methods um, or any possible outliers. And so we calculated the bias, which is the mean difference between SPO2 and SAO2, um, precision, which is the standard deviation, the limits of agreement, and the accuracy of the root mean square error, which you can see the formula on the slide. And lower values for the root mean square error indicate a higher degree of correlation between the two measurement modalities being evaluated. And interestingly, uh, root square mean error of less than 2 to 3% is actually required by the FDA uh, for pulse oximetry devices. Okay, so moving on to the results, uh, we identified 3,569 records on ELSO from 324 centers. Uh, 54 of them were excluded uh, for, uh, to account for the first ECMO runs only. Uh, 520 were excluded due to a small number of patients on each racial and ethnic group. And uh, 1,644 of the records were excluded because there was incomplete uh, blood gas records. We were missing either the pulse ox or the ABG. Um, and then for our primary analysis, 974 records were excluded because they weren't, they didn't have a pulse ox in their range of clinical interest. And again, that's that um, 92 to 96% uh, since they were that is the range in which we thought there would be greater opportunity um, to change behavior and intervene. And so that left us with 372 patients in the final cohort. Um, for demographics, we had 253 men and 119 women. 
And this was the racial breakdown of the patients included in the cohort. So we had 186 white patients, 51 black patients, 75, 70 Hispanic patients, and 65 Asian patients. Um, and these are the results of our analysis where we compare the unadjusted rate of a cold hypoxemia between patients of different races uh, using chi-square. Um, so in this bar graph, the x-axis is race, and then the y-axis is the percent of patients in each racial group uh, with a cold hypoxemia. And the rate of pre-ECMO cold hypoxemia was 10.2% point, 10 uh, for 186 white patients and 21.5% for the 51 black patients included in the study. Um, and the rates of a cold hypoxemia for Hispanic and Asian patients was comparable to that one of white patients. In a logistic regression, uh, which we adjusted for sex and as measure SpO2, black patients with respiratory failure had a statistically higher risk of a cold hypoxemia compared to white patients with an odds ratio of 2.57. Um, and those results were similar to the ones obtained uh, by Schrodinger and Al and the New England Journal of Medicine Peace. Um, and we didn't identify any difference in the cold hypoxemia odds for Hispanic or Asian patients in the study compared to um, white patients. So when we change our definition of a cold hypoxemia to an SAO2 of less than 88% when the SpO2 was measuring greater than 80, 96%, so that's the top end of the SpO2 range, Black patients actually had a statistically significant higher risk of a cold hypoxemia, again, with an odds ratio of 3.52 compared to white patients, um, and the difference was significant. Uh, on the analysis of, bi analysis of bias, precision, and limits of agreement, um, we conducted it for the entire uh, available uh, SpO2 and SaO2 um, pair, so that's without that clinical range restriction. And so the mean bias was 0.6 with a standard uh, deviation of 7.5. And you can see the limits of agreement in the chart. Uh, and the root mean square error was 7.5%. When we broke this down into racial categories and evaluated the root mean square error for each race, we saw a three-point difference between white and black patients, um, which means that the device has a higher error rate in black patients on this particular data set. So those are our results, um, and we interpreted them in light of some very important limitations, which in, of course included sample size and the surrogate use of rays for skin color. Um, however, our sample was still large enough to power us to detect the difference, and since skin color is not collected routinely as part of any relevant registry that we could have used or database that we could have used to answer this question, I think that using race as a surrogate of skin color is probably the best, our best, was probably our best option um, within the limitations that that represents. Um, although we could not do a traditional adjustment for severity of illness, um, all of the patients in the study were ill enough to meet ECMO initiation criteria within six hours of uh, the blood gas being drawn, the pulse ox being obtained. And one additional limitation is that we did not have any pulse oximetry device data available for the analysis. Um, however, we believe that the pulse oximetry brand will likely not influence our results. Um, most pulse oximetry uh, devices, the commercial ones, have like near identical design. And our, this is probably more of a class effect rather than like an issue with one particular device or another.
So given the findings of our study, we concluded that the pulse ox has some limited usefulness when it comes to predicting a pole hypoxemia in acutely ill patients of different races in respiratory failure. And of course, compared to white patients, critically ill black patients have a significantly higher prevalence of a pole hypoxemia, um, with this not being the case for Hispanic or Asian patients in the cohort of our study. All right. So now we're going to discuss some of the implications of these findings. Um, and our study contributed to the growing body of evidence on pulse ox racial bias um, and reviewing both our results and the historical studies. Um, we are inclined to believe that this phenomenon is real and it is clinically relevant for the patients that we're all taking care of. Um, and that realization brings us to probably an even more important question, uh, which is, what do we do about it? Um, and what do we do when our equipment is broken, but somehow we still have to use it? And in the, I mean, in this case, it is not broken, but it systematically misperforms for a particular group of patients. Um, thankfully, uh, the issue has received enough public attention that it has become of interest to some key stakeholders. Um, earlier this spring, uh, Senator Elizabeth Warren, um, along with Senators uh, Cory Brooker and Ron Wyden, send this letter uh, to the uh, acting commissioner uh, of the FDA, um, asking for, for them to quickly conduct a review of pulse oximetry um, accuracy across patients and consumers of uh, different races and ethnicities. And a month later, the FDA issued this safety communication <clears throat> on pulse oximetry accuracy where it both summarized the available findings, but it also provided some very succinct recommendations um, for clinicians to be cautious on the interpretation of the findings of the device. A little less covered, but probably just as important, has been a push uh, of by regional legislatures to raise awareness about the issue. So this is a bill um, that was passed and is sponsored by uh, Representative Patricia Dillon from the 92nd District of Connecticut. Um, and in the bill, they aim to, it was aimed to both informing healthcare providers, but also insurance companies about the issue with pulse oximetry racial bias, um, especially trying to find altern ensuring alternative rounds, uh, routes for reimbursement of things like home oxygen when a patient didn't need that like pulse ox code off. And of course, in the micro level, I don't think that there is anything more important right now that for patients, that for clinicians to be aware of this and make informed decisions about the care patients that account for the accuracy issues of the device. So we do have like a collective reliance on pulse ox measurements that we probably need to taper uh, by following trends rather than single pulse ox measurements. And of course, using additional diagnostic tools to globally assess tissue oxygenation in patients, especially those who are critically ill, and especially those who are considering for advanced therapy such as ECMO. Um, I think the current body of evidence is strong enough to elicit some explicit advocacy from the governing bodies of our specialties. Um, in their pulse oximetry position statement, uh, the Intensive Care Society of the UK issued some very strong recommendations and expectations for industry leaders and healthcare organizations and colleagues, us, we have not done this, um, around the world, demanding immediate action to both redesign, but also like change distribu distribution and purchasing and utilization of pulse ox. So we're all using devices that have been tested on a diverse population and that work well 
for all patients, um, not just for some of them. Um, finally, when in doubt, if you're at the bedside and you have any concerns that the patient has a normal pulse ox, is not doing as well as the pulse ox says, um, I think that we just need to get more gases. Um, our threshold for doing this has become significantly higher, but I think that these findings should really elevate our level of suspicion for hypoxemia in patients that have the correct clinical picture um, and decrease our reassurance from single pulse oximetry measurements in a patient. All right. Thank you for staying with us. There you have it. This is the evidence landscape that we're looking at. So this is three decades worth of data that are indicating that this device that we use every single day is systematically not working well for a certain group of patients. Um, and somehow we are here today, this lovely Zoom room, learning and grappling with the consequences of what is truly just historical negligence around this issue um, and trying to figure out what we can do about it. Um, and I really believe that probably the larger and more existential question as a field and clinicians and advocates and many of us patients ourselves um, is what we're willing to tolerate. Um, this has been a recognized problem for a very long time. And yet today, right now in the ICU and the floors, some of your patients are decompensating without being noticed as promptly um, just because of their skin color. Um, and although today's talk was mostly about pulse ox, um, I recognize that our tolerance for this uh, or any other like delivery of caring justice for that matter, like really like it globally affects the moral compass of our profession um, in the house of medicine, because we really can't claim to provide excellent care as a profession, some of the best care in the world, um, unless we figure out a way of uh, providing them for all patients. All right. Thank you for staying with me. None of this work will have been possible without the outstanding mentorship uh, and investment of all the men in this slide. Some of them we have, I have not met in person. Thank you, COVID. Um, they have told me more about pump crit that probably any surgery resident will ever willingly learn. Um, I am also supported by the incredible academic resources and environment of the Institute for Health Policy and Innovation um, and the National Clinician Scholars where I'm completing my postdoc the Center for Healthcare Outcomes and Policy, and of course, the Michigan Department of Surgery, um, from where I remain alone to the Division of Pulmonary Critical Care Medicine. Thank you all for your attention, um, and I will open it up to questions.